another episode of Failing Forward. As always, I'm your host, Steve Hofstetter, joined here in studio by a special guest who I'll introduce in a moment. But for now, if you enjoy the show, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, share, do all the stuff you do to support the art that you enjoy so other people can enjoy it as well. Now, my guest today, Kostaki Economopoulos, Yay. who uh, the tagline I heard about you very early on before I even knew who you were was the biggest name in comedy. Yeah. Which is such a brilliant way of saying I have a very long name. That was one of my first jokes. It was. It's a very smart joke. <laughs> I, I did a guest set at the Atlanta Punchline, and it was some version of, I called and asked them if I could do a couple minutes tonight, and they said, well, you got to have a big name to play here. Huh? Yeah. Loophole. <laughs> huh? Open mic comedy. Yeah. Uh, there it is. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, uh, and so I just spelled my name, and that took a couple minutes. So, <laughs> Good night. Uh, yeah. Now, old friend in comedy, known you for a long time, yeah. and known of you for even longer. Because uh, for those that don't know you, Kostaki is probably best known for his time on the Bob and Tom show, which continues to this day. It's been 11 years. Yeah. So the Bob and Tom show, a radio juggernaut, a um, hundred different markets. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's like a lot of the things in life. It goes up, it goes down, but it's a hundred-ish right now. Yeah, yeah, in its heyday, Bob and Tom was, you could do one appearance on Bob and Tom, and it was bigger than television. Yeah, that, that's probably true at its peak. Yeah, they had about 160 markets for a while. And they're really big in some of them. You yeah, know, they were in the Midwest mostly. In the Midwest, they were. I had heard a story about in Indianapolis where they were their biggest. Um, Howard Stern at his peak, they a station started playing Stern as their morning show, right. and Bob and Tom beat the pants off of it so much that then that station stopped playing Stern. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. That they yeah. like that they outrated Stern at his peak. Right. They were the Midwest morning show. They're Midwest sensibility. They fit yeah. very well in the Midwest. And so do I. So it's not just chance that it worked out this way. Where are you from? I'm from Atlanta, but it's just I, my style of comedy is not, you know, like I, I'm not a very good match for Stern if we're taking yeah. the extremes, you know. I'm not edgy. I'm not in your face. I'm not particularly sexual. I'm not a lot of the things. And I like Stern. I'm not complaining about yeah. Stern. I'm just saying style-wise – you know, I my act fits very well in the Midwest. And some of my very good friends are Bob and Tom regulars. I'm not a fit for Bob and Tom. Right, right. Like there are... I have some... Tom Simmons is a great friend of mine and just didn't click there for whatever reason, not a match and, uh, yeah. you know, of course. It's, it, <laughs> it, it, is a, it is a very specific fit, but it's something where the people who are, you know, the biggest quote unquote Bob and Tom acts as someone who used to run comedy clubs... We would have the Bob and Tom people in pretty regularly, right? Because we, the clubs were in the Midwest, and but it was funny because we had a club in New York, and we were and some of those acts were like, "Hey, can we come play your New York club?" And we were like, "No, yeah, you're gonna sell no tickets. We love you. You can come to a spot, <laughs> yeah." But no one in New York has ever heard of Bob and Tom, and that was the weirdest thing because the first time I got on it, I didn't know what it was. I was performing in Indiana, and I reached out to them thinking they were a local show. Yeah, they are. I had well, yeah, but I had never heard of it. I grew up in Queens. I'd never heard of it, and they were like, "Yeah, sure, we'll have you on," which 
what a coup for a comic who had been doing it less than a year, which is where I was at the time. Right. right. They didn't know that. Right. <laughs> and so, and, you know, and some other comedy people were like, oh, my God, you're on Bob and Tom. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what this is. Yes. <laughs> and it's it's enormous. But anyway, uh, so you're you're someone who you can sell way more tickets in a Bob and Tom market. Oh, yeah. In fact, the last several years, it almost pulled me out of all of the other markets. Yeah. I do Minneapolis and Atlanta and a handful of places where they I just have a good connection and there's a nice, you know. Yeah. But for the most part, I can make two or three or four or five X in a Bob and Tom market. So I can't afford to go to Seattle. You know right. Right. I mean? I like Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go there. It's a Pike Place market's nice. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the thing that you, the se- the regular segment you do on Bob and Tom is an NFL segment. Yep. Your football jokes are so good. Like they're so good. And I see them, whether it is the stuff you post on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, just your joke writing. And this is what I've always liked about you. Your joke writing is so technical. Huh. It's Excellent. so you're welcome. It's it's a very like there are certain comics where if you want to learn how to write a joke, you should look at those comics. Right. And you're someone especially because you're constantly doing the current events because it's it's an updated football segment during the season. Right. And so it shows there are so many comics who are like, oh, I don't know what to talk about. It's like you can talk about anything and you can be able to write a joke about it. Right. Because you have basically you have a homework assignment. Yeah, that's it's funny you say it that because I think of it that way sometimes. You know, it's like yeah. sometimes Sunday night, it's a little testy around the house because I've spent several hours writing and writing and writing, and there's like three good jokes, and I need twenty. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, and I, you know, sometimes I'll have four or five really good jokes, and then twenty just barely jokes, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's not good enough. Right, right, right. Rewrite. Yeah. Read them to the wife. Not that. Change this. It's a lot of doing. But I've seen, like, I've seen morning radio prep sheets. Your other 16 jokes are still better. Oh, that's very nice. Well, yeah, actually, a friend of mine asked me, why, how does this thing, why does it work? Well, you know, like, well, because the standard is higher, right? Because I'm a stand-up comic. Yeah. And I, in my mind, it's got to make a room full of strangers laugh out loud in order for it to stay in. Yeah. Which is a much higher bar than most of radio. Now, radio's great at lots of things that I'm not good at. Like, yeah. I've co-hosted on Bob and Tom, and that's not my strength. Those guys are saying things they've never said and keeping the ball in the air for four and a half hours. Yeah. That's a completely different skill. But in terms of, like, putting my head down and showing up with seven killer minutes of jokes, that's what I'm good at. Yeah. So I can build that. I, it's a process. It's a whole week-long process. Playing your strengths is an important lesson for people. For sure. That might be the name of this episode. Yeah, right. Yeah. But the yeah, the the idea of how bad some radio is. I was in, I forget where I was, it was recent. <laughs> and you know, some sometimes yeah, in a rental car, sometimes <laughs> you're just like, I can't uh why it has no Bluetooth. I don't know how to get this to work. And so you're just listening to whatever local radio. I think we were somewhere in Texas, and it was like, you know, whatever the morning show is, skipping the whiz or whatever yeah. it was called. And, you <laughs> know, and they're, they're like, yeah, it was skipping the whiz for sure. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, and, oh, things get crazy around here. And the clip that then they used after the things get crazy around here, 
they were just it was the dumbest thing. It was like the you know the token female on the show. Uh huh. Was like, you know, hey, you know, I went out last night. And they're like, we bet you did. And then they all laugh hysterically. And then that's the clip. Yeah. That's right. the whole clip. That's and we're like, clip? this is the worst thing. <laughs> you are why podcasts are successful. Yeah, yeah. Right. You had a, Radio had the chance to beep what podcasts are now. And now yep. podcasts have millions of listeners. Yeah. And terrestrial radio is hanging on by a thread. Yeah, right. The, and it makes sense because you can control – how you listen, for how long you listen, you know, it's part of it's the Netflixification of the universe. Absolutely. Right? But also part of it is because so much and one of the reasons I think Bob and Tom was so successful is they do something that very few other radio shows do, which is when they have comedians on, they let them talk. Yeah, they hand over the reins if they, if they trust them. It's yeah. hard. It took them a long time to trust me, for instance, because I was a little timid, you know, yeah. relatively speaking. Some guys come in there, you know, just going bananas. And I was more like kind of finding my spots and being polite. And it took me a while to kind of, you know, to land with them enough that they trusted me, that but, they would ask me an open-ended question but and also then sit back. That you know? they have two or three comedians on per show, like per day. You know, you talk about keeping the ball in the air for four and a half hours. I can't tell you how many times I've been performing in some city and will reach out to the radio station and they'll basically do what is illegal, which is saying we'll have you on if you buy advertising for the show. Oh, right. Which is payola. That is very illegal. (laughs) But it's also the idea of like, hold on a second. So someone who has to talk for four hours straight doesn't want help for a half hour? Yeah. It's weird. I would, if I were in that position, I would, I mean, every show I've ever done, I've had guests on. Right, right. It makes it better. Yeah, for sure. But they, but you have to understand from their point of view, which is why some places you'll you'll go, you'll go do a club and you do radio. And then when you go to the club again, that radio isn't there anymore. It's because somebody came in and fucked it up. Yeah. Somebody came in and was a terrible guest. Right. And they weren't sure how to deal with them and it felt bad for everyone involved. And then they went, nah, let's not do that again. That's too risky for them. Well, yeah, but that's also <laughs> part of like I your job as a host is to deal with guests good or bad. Yes. And I agree and with still that make too. it good. And right. if it's bad, cut it off and move on. Right. And make fun of it for being bad and, you know, be honest about it in the moment like a comic would and survive yeah. whatever it is and be real. And, and it's still interesting. I agree. And, and find the voices of the people you like the best. And like the, you know, right. I've done shows where I've called in because I was doing uh, something in that city. And they're like, oh, man, we got to have you on every week. And then you never hear from them again. Yeah. And you're like, I. I would do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would have been fine, especially earlier in my career. Yeah, sure. I mean, right. You think I can't call in for 10 minutes? Yeah, and, I got 10 minutes. Yeah, develop an audience? <laughs> uh-huh. Absolutely. Um, anyway, we're way off topic here. So <laughs> this is the success you've had. You have become someone who, because it's it's very hard to draw at all as a comedian. Right. And so you, you've, you've got an audience. Uh, you've got a specific audience, not just that it's Bob and Tom people, but also... You know, because you have this football stuff, I'd imagine a lot of the people who gravitate toward your shows probably are sports fans. 
Yeah, I, it's it's funny. Sometimes I'm not sure how much football stuff to do in a show because mm-hmm. most of my show is not football. Most of my live stand-up show is about me and my wife and my crazy kids and my yeah. fertility struggles and the custody battle, and it's all like my life stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, depending on how well they know me from the radio, I'll do a big chunk of football jokes. Yeah. It, it depends how much they want of it. You have to do like a football joke early on and be like, how'd this go? Yeah, usually, <laughs> I mean, see. Sometimes I kind of save it for later because usually it's a it's got a big arc to it, and I talk yeah. to them about their teams and my team sucks, and we commiserate, and yeah. it's kind of a fun chunk of the show. Yeah, you're. I mean, you're from Atlanta. You guys had the best half of a Super Bowl anyone's ever had. <laughs> do you want to know? I don't want to know. I do a lot of bits here, but I'll do one joke for Absolutely. you. Absolutely, darkest joke I wrote that night. At least when you're a Falcons fan, you slit your wrists, you get to dye in your own team colors. Oh. So that's nice. Oh, that is dark. That's a tough game. That is. <laughs> that's where your head was at the end of that. Oh, I was so. That that game was everything to me. I never. When I was at the University of Georgia, yeah. I had a couple of buddies, and you would circle like the six games on the calendar like a year in advance, and you would build your whole year around the home games at Georgia. And if they lost, I had a couple of buddies that like went in the tank and weren't fun the rest of the weekend. Yeah. And I was like, I'm never going to care that much about football. Yeah, I don't want it to affect. I'm in, I'm in Athens. I'm 19 and I'm drunk. I'm gonna. I don't care if they won. I'm gonna have a great time. Right. And I tried to stay with that my whole life. And one game, I finally let myself. I gave it over. I was like, "This is good against evil. This is my team against the scariest dynasty in the history of football." Right. This was. Uh, my brother was at the game and just survived leukemia and had a bone oh. marrow transplant. I had some crazy like uh, tournament thing. I put twenty five bucks in and and I picked the Falcons to win it all. And then when it came down to that one game, if they had won, I would have won fifteen hundred dollars on a oh twenty five. And it was like they were talking about being Trump's friends. And it was like it was everything. I finally caved and I was like, I care about this game so much. Yeah. And it broke my heart. The little tiny pieces. (laughs) I'm trying to think if there was if I've ever had my team blow a lead like that. I mean, I've, I've had I'm a Mets fan. Okay, so we've had the the uh what was it, 2007 and 2008 collapses. 2007, the year after we were we were a swing away from the World Series. Ah. Um, and in 2007, we were well in first place and had one of the, it's the first time the Mets really ever collapsed in their history. They were always sucky or good. It was like wire to wire first place or garbage. Yeah, that's, there that's was a, easier there to was handle. There was very little in between. Yeah, expectations. <laughs> Expectations is what sets us up for disappointment, which we'll talk about when we're going to talk about with your failure story in a little bit. <laughs> but it's, you know, and as a sports fan, I'm trying to think of like when the Giants won the Super Bowl, they came back. That's right. When, I mean, even in 86, they were down at the half. When I was a kid, they were down at the half to the Broncos. Is that right? In Yeah. In uh, when they won in 90. Actually, I don't think I've. The only Super Bowl I've ever seen them lose was against the Ravens in 2000, and they were spanked from the beginning. Yeah. Like, that was one where I cared about the game for sure, but they didn't have much of a chance. Yeah, I'm trying to think the only, maybe the Knicks in 94, when they were up 3-2, to two, and Starks missed the buzzer beater. That's the. I think that's the only time I've ever had. Yeah, but that. I mean, that collapsed twenty-eight to three in the third quarter. Yeah, I, mean, that's I can't really, even. Like that's. And you were the underdogs. Epic. 
and huge underdogs and the biggest, the best offense in the league. Yeah, 28 to 3 in the third quarter. And an overtime system that didn't let the best offense in the league touch the ball in overtime to yeah. decide the championship game. Yeah. That's absurd. Yeah. That's was... crazy. All right. So, enough about other people's failures. All right. Let's talk about yours. I want to hear about Last Comic Standing. Okay. But I want to hear about it after the break. Okay. All right. Deal. Support the people who support us. Welcome back to Failing Forward, joined here with Kostaki Economopoulos, the biggest name in comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking sports because it's hard for Kostaki and I to get together without talking sports. Yeah, but yeah. I also want to talk about Last Comic Standing, a okay. show that I have discussed my own failures with on this uh, on this podcast oh. previously. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm curious to hear about yours. Wow. I did Last Comic Standing four, five, six times. I did the first year, actually, in Atlanta. Nobody knew what it was, and it was this yeah. crazy thing, and you stood, stood around the street for the half a day to go get, do a minute or this something. This is, what, 2004? It's-ish, yeah, give yeah. or take. It's That was a long time ago. So, All right, so this tale is more from 2010-ish, give okay. or take. Uh, Steve Sharippa and Richard Belzer were the judges. Yeah. And it was at Gotham in New York City. And Shrippa, he was never a comic, was he? Not that I know of, but he did book comedy for 20 years or something. Yeah. I mean, he was like in and around. I mean, he knew comedy. To, I don't particularly love Sharippa, but he does know comedy. Yeah. Where did he book? <laughs> he booked a club in Vegas forever. Okay. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like he was he was in there running that place for years. Yeah. It, it was had, the Riv, I think. He, I had no Riviera. idea. Yeah, so he knew comedy. Okay, and Richard Belzer, you know, Belzer was the guy. He was he was the guy during before before most of the guys were the guys. Yeah, he was he was the the host at Catch. Yeah, um, Catch a Rising Star in New York was like one of like the clubs in New York. You you know, those are the stories of like Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David and right. like. When they came up, Belzer was the host. Yeah, right. All that that was there. So, so Belzer certainly has credibility. They're, yeah, you know, we complain about these people make these big decisions in life. They don't even know what they're talking about. These two guys, again, like them or not like them, they know what they're talking about. Yeah, you might not agree with their sensibility or their taste. Yeah. <laughs> so, and to the listener who might not know this, I know you know this, and. Most of the years of Last Comic Standing, especially in the big markets like New York and L.A., they would literally see hundreds of comics during the course of the afternoon yeah. to decide who was on the night show. And they would they would literally have you get on the stage from one side of the stage and walk off the other so that they could have comics like going up. Everyone's doing 60 seconds, 90 seconds. They would literally see four, five, six hundred guys in the middle of the day. And you're talking to no one. It's literally an open comedy club. You're on the regular stage. Yeah. You got the regular microphone. You got the regular lights, but there's no audience. You're speaking to a room full of empty chairs. Which, as <laughs> as auditions go, is the most artificial. That would be like it's trying crazy. to judge a baseball player with no pitcher. It's so weird. It's you can't stand up as a conversation. Right. You can't have it as a monologue, but it's a conversation of energy. Yeah. And to have no one talking back on the other end is so stupid and artificial. So kind of in the back of the room yeah. is Sharippa and Belzer. And then there's a couple of grips kind of wandering around. There's no audience. <laughs> yeah, there's like a stage in here there's, and there. There might be a no PA. There's no audience. Yeah. So 
the guy that went on in front of me was Mike Kaplan, who's a yeah. great comic. Mike Kaplan's fantastic. And he was holding a ukulele, and Sharippa didn't let him talk. What? He was like, no, I know comedy. I don't like guys that have props. Certainly not a ukulele. You're out of here. Which Kaplan, who eventually was a finalist on Last Comic Stand. Right. Did very well, and it changed his life, and he's a great comic and has done fine for himself without Sharippa's blessing. Sharippa didn't let him talk. What a dick. Yeah, he was, he was such a dick. And so I'm watching this, and I know and like Mike, and I'm like, oh, God. So... They, he goes off that side of the stage. I swallow hard. They say my name, and I walk onto the stage. Yeah. And I, I, that year, I did a political set. I, did, I had, had jokes about the election cycle. And yeah. so I did something that was kind of weird, and I did topical jokes. And Shrippa cuts me off like 45 seconds in, and he goes, Ah, you're a real comic. Come back tonight. And, then, and he goes, Hold on. And they're talking to each other. And he goes, Belzer wants to see you wear a suit. And I go, what? I go, Bells, I, I'm a different era. You know, he's always like, era, now he's mad at me. Oh. <laughs> so I've already aggravated the judges. <laughs> oh, he's like, era, what are you talking about? I'm 23. Yeah, right. I'm so, 23 as he drags on a cigarette. So they dismiss me pleasantly, say, yeah, we'll see you tonight. So now okay. it's like five something. The call time for the show is seven something. I have just enough time to get on a train and go home and put on a suit. Right. I'm trying to decide. So you did wear the suit. I'm trying to decide whether or not to do that. Oh, that is tough. So I called my girlfriend at the time, who was a comic. We knocked it around. I called, uh, I talked to Chris Mazzilli, who runs the club, and he's standing there wearing a suit. Yeah, I've never seen Chris in anything but a suit. Right. And Chris goes, it's TV. Yeah, put on a suit. All right. I called Tom Simmons my longtime comedy buddy, and uh, we're knocking it around. And I go, I just don't think Richard, you know, George Carlin would put on a suit because Richard Belzer told him to. And he goes, yeah, that's probably true, but George Carlin would never do Last Comic Standing. That's a great point. <laughs> and yeah. So I went home, I put on a suit, I came back, and I ate it. <laughs> <laughs> it was oh. one of those sets that I just, like in the first, five seconds it's just terrible yeah and you only have whatever it was two minutes you know i just it just did not i did not give them a chance to pick me. you weren't comfortable wasn't comfortable in my suit i was rattled by the situation yeah and you know, the the audience smelled fear like a dog and it was just a, it was awful it is so important to wear whatever you're comfortable with and yes. i've gone through many many iterations yeah right I have now I actually wear suits on stage for the most part. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. I'm still, I, I don't do it when I'm doing like showcase sets in and around town, but when I'm doing like my full show on the road, and I don't do it when I'm abroad because I don't want to pack that much. Like, I don't <laughs> want to have to, the amount of flights I have to take. Like, when I was in Australia, I was doing, I, I did seven days in a row with flights. Wow. And I'm like, I'm not checking a bag. I'm doing everything I can to just have that little carry on and, right. and, you know, try to wear extra stuff so the Jetstar doesn't weigh my luggage, <laughs> like whatever right. it is. Right. But, uh, but when I'm on the road, I wear. I've been wearing suits lately, and I I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I think it fits with the current act I'm doing. Yeah, and you're a grown up but now. It's yeah, not like I'm, you're a punk yeah. kid anymore. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I was. You know, I was trying to wear everything I could but suits, and now like I'm actually trying to like dress nice. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. But it's, I think it matters on what you're comfortable with. Yeah, of course. And I mean, that's the obvious takeaway from that. And also, 
the nature of these things is that they're a bit of a lottery ticket, right? You yeah. see someone like Josh Blue, who's whatever, making $900 a weekend, and then boom, he's making 9000 a week. I don't know what the real number is, but it's yeah. a gigantic change. And that's what you have in your little daydream, like, oh, I'm going to, and if I do, and if I, you know. But And then you can kind of lose track of the the moment-to-moment beats that are important, which is just remember you're a comic and it's just comedy yeah. and get out of your head and just be good. There's, just there's, do your thing. There's a lesson I learned from my father a long time ago when I was driving, when he was teaching me how to drive. And, you know, so we're driving around a parking lot, the you know empty office park on a weekend kind of thing. And, you know, we're talking, just shooting the shit. And he, he said something about... Uh, people who come in from other countries, because I was moving to California, and you know, completely other country. And yeah. I was moving to California, and I was talking to him about, you know, or is it a difference in getting your license in New York and California, etc. And he said that, oh, you know, when you move to a new place to get a new state's driver's license, you have to take a written test. You don't have to take the road test again. And he said, but you do have to take the road test again if you move from another country. Huh. And I said, and I don't know what's true now. I just, you know, this was twenty years ago. And, uh, or actually more embarrassingly, only 16 years ago, <laughs> uh, I got my license when I was 24. I'm a New York kid. Is that right? So yeah, I never, I never had to drive anywhere. It was only cause I was moving to California that I was like, I should learn how to drive. Wow. So, uh, which is so funny because I ended up, I mean, a road comic who was driving a hundred thousand miles a year. Right. Um, but I asked him, I said, well, what do they do? Do they, do they take lessons? Do they, you know, et cetera. And he goes, they just drive. They already know how to drive. And it it stuck with me so much huh. because it applies to so many things and it applies to a situation like when I have been nervous before a show, when I have like, uh, I went out for America's Got Talent and went as far as you could go without being selected. Right. They had me do, in a show where you do 90 seconds, they had me do a half hour. Because they kept asking me, because the thing they were interested in me is they were like, you have a bunch of different types of material. And so they're like, I want to see more of this. I want to see more of that. I want to So I was in front of the producers just performing for a half hour. And which, and there are more people in that room than there are when you do Last Comic Standing. (laughs) They're actually like 10 human beings instead of four. Um, But when I was nervous before it, I would say to myself, just drive. You know how to drive. That's a good, I like that. It's it has stuck with me for so long, and my dad didn't say it to be like this life lesson that I'm still remembering long after he died. You know, it was just an offhanded comedy, right? But. Right. You know, somebody who said something like that that stuck with me was uh, Billy Gardell. Yeah, we were doing auditions for HBO's Aspen thing, which was a big deal at the time. I remember that. And uh, you know, comics are kind of aware and trying to derotify themselves for the auditions. Yeah. And Billy was the opposite. He was like, ah, you're a fucking real comic. You wear the road like a badge. Like, you know comedy, you know? And I yeah. I, I like that approach. That's better, you know? Because I have done comedy thousands of times and I'm good at that little specific thing. Yeah. Why should I be self-conscious about, you know, show business people looking at me doing that? That's the part I'm good at. Well, it, it's it's kind of it, it kind of relates to dating because sometimes you go, oh, early on in a relationship, you don't want to show your flaws. Yeah, right. You know, you want to, oh, let me hold back on this. Let me not have a strong opinion about this because what if that offends her? What if, you know, et cetera? 
But I realized that's exactly why you want to have your strong opinion about it. Yeah, you want to. You want to you want to thin the herd early. Exactly. Right. Get, and look, there are some people who are like, I'm just happy to have a date. I just want to have a second date. Yeah. But like, if you're not desperate for affection, yeah, yeah, then be as upfront and be as you as possible. Because what you need is someone who is going to be okay with the fact that you're you. Right. And that's true for casting as well. It's true for jobs. Right. You want to stand out from other applicants and you want to be what they're looking for, but you also want to be you. Yeah. And they are, if you can be patient, and that's kind of what this whole show is about. The idea of success doesn't have to happen at 15 years old. It doesn't have to happen at 30. Success can happen later in life and it happens the more true to yourself you can be. Right. Yeah, I agree. I got a couple more failure stories if you want. Let's go one more. We we have enough time for a, They're super a quick short. one. Do we have okay. a quick one? All I have right. a super fast one. All right. Similar situation. Gotham, one of the other years, right? Yeah. Last comic standing. And I, that, I like the idea that all of your failure stories have to do with one television show. Yeah, one show, one stage. <laughs> <laughs> I failed there a lot. <laughs> Uh, that one I did great. I, the yeah. set was great. We did we did the night. I did the night set, and it was awesome. And they're picking. Right? Was this uh, before or after the other one? I don't even remember the chronology. Okay, because I'm curious because that, that changes the story for me. If it's I'm after, gonna, it would make more sense. I'm going to guess that it was before because I remember being very playful about it all. You yeah. Know? Uh, so they're doing these dramatic moments where it's like, okay, there's one last golden ticket to Hollywood, whatever they, you know. Yeah. And we're, there's, we pick seven comics from New York. There's one more spot. And they have us all huddled on the stage, you know, the people who are not chosen yet. Yeah. Do and you remember who some of those other people there. were? I remember one of them was Keith Alberstadt, and I'm standing right next to him. And we we're yeah. kind of trying to joke about it. To, I love Keith. To minimize the tension of it yeah. all. Yeah, fellow and Mets I, fan. And I'm whispering, yeah. And I'm whispering to him, they're going to say, Kostaki Economopoulos, get ready. It's going to happen. And they go, yeah. and the last comment going to Hollywood is, I go, Kostaki Economopoulos. And they go, Bob Smith. And they go, that's exactly the opposite. <laughs> Who is Bob Smith? <laughs> he was a good comic at the time. I, I never really saw much of him before or since, but he had a good set that night. Never heard the name. Nope, no bitterness about Bob Smith. but I. Good luck to you if you're Bob Smith. I'm guessing we have a couple of listeners named Bob Smith. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Just from sheer odds. <laughs> but if that is the opposite of both Kasaki Okanomovlis and Keith Alberstadt, <laughs> Bob Smith. <laughs> well, here's my the broader sort of lesson for me is yeah. I – just assumed because I was clean and kind of a joke smith guy that I would have some success on television. Yeah. I just thought that would be a part of my comedy story. And with a few exceptions, for the most part, television was like, meh. And radio has been like, come on. Yeah. I didn't plan it that way, but radio has been great and it plays to my strengths because I can sit and produce a little thing that I'm really good at doing. Yeah. And I get to know those people over time. They get to know me, and there's a relationship that's built, and radio fits my skill set great. I just didn't know that was going to be part of the story. Well, that's the lesson. Yeah. Play to your strengths. Yeah. Kostaki, where can we find out more about you? Kostaki.com is ground zero of everything, and uh, I'm out there doing lots of football jokes and family jokes and memes and things on all the social media platforms, at Funny Kostaki and If you're Instagram. a football fan at all, 
you have to you have to fuck with what Kostaki does. It's so good. <laughs> oh, and Quick Snaps the podcast. We're on a podcast. I should pro- plug the podcast. Yeah, plug your own podcast. Anywhere you get podcasts, Quick Snaps the podcast. We do every Sunday night during the season to wrap up the weekend that was in the NFL. And we do about once a month. And uh, I'm headed to Miami. I got a Super Bowl media credential to run around and interview players this week. So, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be so fun. That's so excellent. Well, by the, time this, by the time this airs, we'll have already known what happened. That the Chiefs won by 20? Yeah. We would, oh, my God. Now if they do. <laughs> now if they do. All right. Kostaki, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Always man. a pleasure to catch up with you. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Catch us again next week. <laughs>